0: Uh, I'd like to just read one more time those words to as the deer, and it fits so well with the last song as well. But you are my friend, you're my brother, even though you are my king, I love you more than any other, so much more than anything. And then the next verse, I want you more than gold or silver, only you can satisfy. You alone are the real joy giver, and the apple of my eye. And what a great reminder. May the Lord make it so in our lives more and more that we are satisfied in Him and that we want Him more than anything else in this world. I don't know if you caught the headlines this week. There are a lot of them, actually. But I'm not talking about the election headlines or more hurricane headlines or coronavirus headlines, but the headlines about uh, Pope Francis, actually. This week, uh, headlines came out that Pope Francis is in favor of civil unions between homosexual couples, and there are a lot of things that could be said about that, both, uh, both theologically and also about Catholicism. And we'll say some of those things this morning. But I want to start the discussion and thinking through this morning by asking a question, actually two questions. One, does the Bible tell us anything about these topics, specifically of sexual morality? And then two, does what the Bible says still apply to us today? So I'm going to answer the second one first right now. If God speaks whenever the Bible speaks, if the Bible is God's word so that every part of it is God speaking to us, and if God doesn't change and his word doesn't change, then it would follow that as long as God exists, he exists eternally, as long as he exists, then his word continues to apply to us. So there might be situations that arise where we have to apply his word in a new way or new applications. But his word has not changed. We must always follow it and hold true to it and what it says. And so his truth still applies to us today. So with that answered, we need to see what does the Bible say on this topic? And... I didn't plan it this way, but in our course of walking through Genesis in the life of Abraham, this morning we are in Genesis 19, which is the story of God rescuing Lot, or as we know it mostly, the story of Sodom and Gomorrah. And so as we get to this chapter, we know something big is about to happen, right? Abram's already look to the east. He's already pleaded with God to deliver Lot. We saw last week that God was planning to go there and destroy the city. We saw even when Abraham and Lot separated, we got tipped off that Sodom was not really a great area, that there was sin, that there was destruction coming. And so all this comes to a head, it comes to a climax here in verse uh, in chapter 19 so let's read together this passage this morning genesis 19 and the word of the Lord says this the two angels came to Sodom in the evening and Lot was sitting in the gate of Sodom when Lot saw them he rose to meet them and bowed himself with his face to the earth and said my lords please turn aside to your servant's house and spend the night and wash your feet Then you may rise up early and go on your way. They said, No, we will spend the night in the town square. But he pressed them strongly, so they turned aside to him and entered his house. And he made them a feast and baked unleavened bread, and they ate. But before they lay down, the men of the city, the men of Sodom, both young and old, all the people to the last man, surrounded the house. And they called to Lot, Where are the men who came to you tonight? bring them out to us that we may know them. Lot went out to the men at the entrance, shut the door after him and said, I beg you, my brothers, do not act so wickedly. Behold, I have two daughters who have not known any man. Let me bring them out to you and do to them as you please. Only do nothing to these men for they have come under the shelter of my roof. But they said, stand back. And they said, this fellow came to sojourn and he has become a judge Escape to the hills, lest you be swept away. And Lot said to them, "Oh no, my lords, behold, your servant has found favor in your sight, and you have shown me great kindness in saving my life. But I cannot escape to the hills, lest the disaster overtake me and I die. Behold, this city is near enough to flee to, and it is a little one. Let me escape there. Is it not a little one? And my life will be saved." He said to him, Behold, I grant you this favour also, that I will not overthrow the city of which you have spoken. Escape there quickly, for I can do nothing till you arrive there. Therefore the name of the city was called Zoar. The sun had risen on the earth when Lot came to Zoar, then the Lord rained on Sodom and Gomorrah, sulphur and fire from the Lord of out of heaven. So it was that when God destroyed the cities of the valley, God remembered Abraham and sent Lot out of the midst of the overthrow when he overthrew the cities of which Lot had lived. Now Lot went up out of Zoar and lived in the hills with his two daughters, for he was afraid to live in Zoar. So he lived in a cave with his two daughters, and the firstborn said to the younger, Our father is old, and there is not a man on earth to come into us after the manner of all the earth. Come, let us make our father drink wine, and we will lie with him, that we may preserve offspring from our father. So they made their father drink wine that night, and the firstborn went in and lay with her father. He did not know when she lay down or when she arose. The next day the firstborn said to the younger, Behold, I lay last night with my father. Let us make him drink wine tonight also. May God open our eyes to the reading of his word this morning. Here's the roadmap for where we're going this morning. So if you're familiar with the Lord of the Rings, or whether it's the books or the movies, you'll know that Tolkien has this unique structure to the books, and you see it in the movies as well. He'll follow one of the characters or a couple of the characters all the way through the story, and then he'll go back and he'll pick up the story of other characters and then follow them all the way through the story. And he does this a few times throughout the books. And that's basically the trajectory we're gonna follow this morning. So there's the there's the characters of Sodom, the people of Sodom, and we'll look at that. And then we'll look at Lot and his family. And then we'll look at God and his role throughout this story. So as we start, we notice a couple things about Sodom and Gomorrah. First, we notice that Sodom will not be turned away from doing wickedness. We see this toward the beginning of the passage that everyone in the city to the last man gathers together. They will not be deterred. They grow more violent, even to the point where they're willing to break down the door and won't let anyone stop them. It gets to the point where these angels have to intervene, pull Lot in, and blind the people to get them to stop. And, and if you notice, even then, they don't stop. They do not stop pursuing their sin. They continue to seek out the door. They wear themselves out because they continue to seek the door. They continually seek wickedness. They will not be turned away from it. And even more than that, when Lot goes to his daughter's fiancés, we see that they think Lot is joking when he tells them about the coming destruction. Like, sin has become so common and so pervasive and so normal that they don't think anything wrong is really even going on. It seems like a joke that they would even be punished or destroyed for this. And so they hear the Word of God come and they... It seems ridiculous to them. So everyone in the city we see is filled with this wickedness and will not be turned away from wickedness. It's really, if you remember earlier in Genesis, it's really like before the flood came. We read this of how everyone, Genesis 6-5, the Lord saw the wickedness of man was great in the earth, that every intention of the thoughts of his heart was only evil, continually and we see those similarities here in this passage as well. And as you remember, Moses wrote this book, both the account of the flood and this account here. He's, he's using a lot of the same terms, a lot of the same descriptions. He wants us to see this connection that these people in Sodom are just like these people before the flood. And they're both worthy, of doing things worthy of destruction and are people who are going to be judged by God. And so Sodom was full of, Sin and all kinds of perversion, but we can and we should be more specific than that and not shy away from saying that the sin of Sodom was homosexuality. One of the sins. This is uh one is the answer to the question I asked earlier, but it's an incredibly important thing for us to know and not only know but be able to explain in the midst of our culture today that. We live in a culture, really, that is not that different from Sodom, if we just look around at where we are at and the immorality, and so we see from this passage and we see elsewhere what the Bible says on this topic of sexuality, of relationships, of marriage and what it is meant to look like. First, we have the the positive teaching of the Bible of what it's supposed to look like, and then you have the, the negative teaching of what it's not supposed to look like. So if you think about what relationships are supposed to look like, we see it at the very beginning when God creates male and female and puts them in a relationship. He commits them to each other, they are married. We see that that is the ideal throughout the Bible. And then we see that reaffirmed by Jesus. When he's asked about marriage in Matthew 19 and what it's supposed to look like, he goes back to the beginning and he quotes it and he says, did not God create them male and female in the beginning? And that that marriage is meant to be. That it's a committed, lifelong relationship between one man and and one woman and anything in the Bible, everything in the Bible points to this ideal. This is what relationships are meant to look like. And anything else that's not that committed relationship, marriage between one man and one woman, falls short of the pattern of the Bible, falls short of God's glory. And when I say fall short, I mean that in terms of Romans 3.23 falling short that Falling short of God's glory is sin. And so we have that positive teaching of what it's meant to look like, and then we have that negative teaching as well. When other places in the Bible talk about Sodom, they talk about it in certain ways. So Ezekiel, for example, 16, talks about Sodom. Here's what it says. Ezekiel 16, Behold, this was the guilt of your sister Sodom, She and her daughters had pride, excessive food, and prosperous ease, but did not aid the poor and needy. They were haughty and did an abomination before me, so I removed them when I saw it. It lists several sins there. But that last phrase, an abomination, means something very specific. Ezekiel is referencing back to Leviticus with that phrase. And when Leviticus uses that phrase, it's speaking of, homosexuality. It's speaking of, to quote Leviticus, you shall not lie with a male as with a woman. It is an abomination. And so Ezekiel views Sodom as this is the sin that they were committing. We see, we read this morning in Second Peter and we also read in Jude that the sin of Sodom and Gomorrah and the surrounding cities was sexual immorality and pursuing unnatural desire. And throughout the Bible, we see this clearly presented as being the sin of Sodom. It's sin and God destroyed the city because of their sin. And we as Christians can be clear about what the Bible teaches on this, even though it is not consistent with the culture we are in and continually facing. We also see from Sodom that it doesn't matter what age they are. Right, The sin is pervasive through them all. To the last man, they all pursue wickedness. And so it's a reminder of, to us that sin and Satan does not discriminate. Right, Sin will try to devour us, whether we are young or old, whether we're 14 or 83, sin will destroy us. This shows us what our hearts are naturally like. Where left to ourselves our hearts would go. Our heart is deceitful above all else and desperately wicked, as Jeremiah says. It's incurably sick. And so this passage reminds us that everyone has this kind of heart. Everyone either did have this kind of heart or currently has this kind of heart that leads to this kind of sin. And it's either, it's just because of the mercy and common grace, it's called, of God, that everyone does not fall into this level of sin, these amounts of sin, this pervasiveness of sin. But we know that this is what a human heart is like, and left to itself, it devolves into wickedness. And nothing can change it. Being, uh, We read this in Romans 3, being a moral person won't change our hearts. Being a follower of rules or going to church consistently or giving consistently will not change our hearts. That our hearts like to deceive us into thinking we're better than the hearts of other people. We have a better heart, right? But that is our heart's playing us, deceiving us, taking advantage of us whenever we believe that lie that our hearts are naturally better than someone else's. No, it's just, it's just the restraining grace of God that keeps us from going to that place. There go I, but by the grace of God, you might have heard before. So someone else has to change our hearts, and unless our hearts are changed, like Jesus says, unless we repent, we will likewise perish. But... It doesn't end there. We've seen this with Sodom, where Sodom is at, the wickedness, and how they are destroyed. But we're reminded of, even in this, the, the mercy of God and the forgiveness that is offered. In other words, the hope that God has. That if this is our heart, and this is the heart of every human being, that, that's not the end of the story. <laughs> well, what do we do now? We can't change our hearts, so what are we supposed to do? We're stuck in this wickedness. Well, God doesn't leave us there. We read in the Old Testament of the glimpses of hope that we have, how God will come. He will take the heart of stone, the old heart, out of people and give them a new heart and make them new creations who know him and who are indwelt with the Holy Spirit. And then we follow that trajectory through and we see that Jesus, when he comes and he dies on the cross, he takes the penalty for those sins so that that Punishment can be dealt with on the cross so that our heart, our sinful actions can be removed, can be cleansed, and we can be given a new heart and indwelt by God. This is, this is the gospel that God can take an incurably sick heart and make it new. He can take a desperately heart, desperately wicked heart, and make it a new creation And this is what he promises to us if we will believe in him, simply trust in him, that he is able to do this and that he will do it as he promised if we will ask him, if we will simply ask him to do it, to save us and commit to following him. Sodom is a reminder of the depths of our sin, but it's also a reminder of the great depths of god's grace and mercy. And so this is Sodom. But Sodom is not the only character, right? We follow them through a little bit, but we also follow Lot and his family through. And we see that Lot is has some good and has some bad, right? That he first he starts out good. He's hospitable just like Abraham was to these guests he brings them in, he takes care of them. He gets a feast ready for them, just like Abraham did. He tells the people not to do wickedly, right? He's protecting them. He tells his daughter's fiance's to escape with them. He warns them of the judgment. He's, we shouldn't forget this, he's described by 2 Peter, like we read this morning, as a a righteous man, which sometimes catches us off guard and surprises us. But the list sometimes, it seems like the list of the bad things that Lot does in this passage seems to outweigh the list of the good things, right? We see him offer his daughters to the mob in place of his guests. We see that he lingers in the city. We see that he wants to not really fully follow what the angels tell him, not fully follow God's instruction and go to the hills, but still, still hold on to a little of what he wants to do and just go to Zoar, this little city. We see that Lot's family, his wife, looks back she is still attached to the things of this world. She looks back and she is turned to a pillar of salt. We see lots of daughters and lots of drunkenness in this passage at the end, in this morbid, strange, just wicked passage at the end, and how they are immoral as well. They have followed in the path of Lot and his uh, willingness to compromise in offering his daughters. We see his daughters kind of view things as the same way. How can I accomplish what I want to accomplish? And so they're willing to twist their morality in order to make something happen, in order to scheme. It reminds us really of Abraham and Sarah scheming how they can have a child and coming up with this, their own immoral plan. And that even though, it really reminds us that even though Sodom was destroyed, that the, the sin of Sodom, the, the heart of Sodom, the, the wickedness that's pervasive in Sodom was not destroyed because it was not based just in a location or a city, but it was based in the human heart and it lived on even after Sodom. And so it all ends and we see Lot really end up in this terrible place. We follow his progression. First, he, had, he was overflowing with possessions because he was close to Abraham was blessed because of it. Then he separated from him and he went east to Sodom. And it seems like he might still kind of have some prominence of Sodom. He's sitting in the gate. But then Sodom is destroyed. And he goes to Zoar, this little city, and then by the end of this passage, he's in a, a cave in fear. And how he has how his life has progressed smaller and smaller and worse and worse, we would say. And it's really a reminder to us of the effects of sin. That sin will destroy. That even though Lot may be described as a righteous person who we, we presume escapes with his life, that that's it. That sin destroyed the rest of his life. That being surrounded by sin has an effect on him and his family. And it reminds me of this saying that sin will take us farther than we want to go. Sin will keep us longer than we want to stay. And sin will cost us more than we want to pay. And we see that in Lot's life. That Lot being surrounded by sin tormented his righteous soul by seeing and hearing their lawless deeds. That's what 2 Peter says. And so it's a reminder that We must not think that being surrounded by sin or by wickedness has no influence on us. Whether it's the things we hear people say or do, whether it's the TV we watch, or the things we hear on the radio or our interactions, those things have an effect. We must not sit passively around those things and absorb that toxicity like a sponge we have to be watchful as jesus reminded his disciples prayerful and watchful as we are in the world so that we are not of the world we must flee sin don't delay don't hold on to a little bit of it like lot or his family we must flee sin and seek to get rid of all of it so that we live holy lives This is what Lot and his family remind us of. But Lot and Sodom are not the only characters. The final character that we must pay attention to is what is God doing in this story? We see, and 2 Peter tells us, helps us interpret this, what is going on, we see that the Lord knows not only how to punish unrighteousness and the punishment that will come to everyone who is not righteous, but we see also that the Lord knows how to rescue or deliver the godly out of those trials. And we see that here. We've already talked about God's justice and how he will punish sin when we looked at Sodom. But we should notice God's ability to deliver. That lot is almost destroyed multiple times. He's almost overwhelmed by the mob. He's almost too slow in getting out of the city. But the angels take him into the house. They take him up and they put him out of the city. They wait to destroy the city until he is safely where he needs to be. That God is not only going to bring his justice, but he's also going to deliver his people That just as he made a distinction between the Egyptians and the Israelites just as he made a Distinction when the Israelites entered the land of Canaan just as he will in the end Bring judgment on the world, but also be able to deliver his people that God is able to preserve his people to save his people and so we must Remember to rely on the Lord, that he is able to save us and deliver us. And so we don't have to think, how am I going to be saved? How am I going to be delivered? We can make sure that we are relying on God like Abraham did and not like Lot did. So we talked earlier how our hearts can be changed so that we won't be destroyed like the people of Sodom and Lot is a testimony to that fact, that God will save his people. That faith in God is not misplaced. That if we belong to God, we will not perish. We will be saved to eternal life. That God is able to deliver his people, and he will deliver his people. So we see in this passage that God delivers his people, that he's able to use, even use sin to accomplish his plan, and this is really the major final point we see, that we know that sin clearly does not honor God. We can look at this passage and see there was nothing honorable about what was happening in this passage. There's incredible wickedness in this passage, and yet, yet, if we're reading carefully, and we're thinking about what God is doing here. We see this thread of gospel hope, even in this passage, that God is going to take what was meant for evil. You remember this phrase from Joseph. God took what was meant for evil. The brothers meant it for evil, but God meant it for good. God's doing the same thing here. What was meant for evil, God is using for his good so that the child of Lot's daughter is named Moab, Moab. He's the father of the Moabites. If we were to think, who is the most famous Moabite in the Bible? You just think for a second. And now I will tell you the answer. Mm -hmm. Ruth. Ruth is a Moabitess. So that even in this, even out of such great wickedness, we see that God's plan is not thwarted, but God is even able to use this for his plan, because Ruth was redeemed by her kinsman Redeemer Boaz, and they were the great grandparents of David. And eventually, God brought his very only begotten son into the world through this line that Ruth would not have existed if this passage, if this wickedness did not take place. And it's amazing to see how God is even able to redeem such great sin for such goodness to deliver the world and use it for his glory. God is able to keep his word, and he is not thrown off by sin. He will punish sin, but he will also get the glory from it. So this is what Genesis 19 is about, and we should say in conclusion that we live in a culture today where We need to know what this passage says and how to be able to talk about it with others, be able to support it, as even some who would be in quote-unquote churches do not uh, adhere to this truth, and they deny it. And in so doing, they deny the Bible and its teaching. But we should be able to say what the Bible says and know why it says it, that Abraham... You remember his role was to communicate to other people what it meant to know God and what it meant to follow God. That was his role, how he was going to bring this blessing, that we are doing the same thing. We need to do the same thing. We need to show in our lives what it means to honor God, specifically what it means to honor God in our relationships. We know that sin leads to brokenness. And so we can look around and see the brokenness that already has come, and we can predict that much brokenness will come. And may we be the people who are able to shine light of what God's better way is in relationships in what it means to know him so that we may hold out the good news of God to people that are broken so that they may be restored and made new and gain new hearts through this. May we be the aroma of life unto life as we live out our lives and demonstrate what it means to be in relationships with each other and with God. Let's pray together this morning. Father God, we are thankful for this passage. We're thankful that your word does not skip corners. That you teach us the whole truth, the whole counsel your whole counsel in your word that through it you equip us for everything we need for life and for godliness thank you that you show us a picture of sin that destroys God may we not be drawn to sin not drawn to the things of this world but as the deer pants for water may we long for you may we be drawn towards you to not look back to not hold on to sin but to press on towards you towards eternal life God, continue to change us, eliminate sin from our lives, make us holier. And we pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen. We're going to have a time of response now. Use this as a time to think, how how, have I been convicted? How do I need to respond to God this morning? I'll be here to pray or talk with you if you'd like to pray or talk about anything. But let's respond, stand and sing and respond to the Lord this morning.